this is a revamp of the Heights of the Century episode I did back in January. When I googled largest grand robbery and this case showed up, I didn't know how interesting it would get as I kept reading. The main character of the story, Leonardo, who went by Leo, was an interesting man, and I only barely covered his history and what he was like before he led a five-man team committing the grandest theft ever, literally. It was the year 2000. A man named Leonardo Notarbartolo rented an office in the Diamond Center, which was one of the area's largest buildings in Antwerp, Belgium. Upon renting, he said he was a gem importer based in Turin, Italy, and scheduled meetings with a number of dealers. He bought juries, paid in cash, he dressed really well but spoke really broken French. He fit into the circle, though, because of his in-depth knowledge on gems, probably from his years of experience. He became good friends with some dealers, some businessmen, who all saw him as potential. A foreign man with big money who's going to invest in their businesses and make them all rich. Leo was also very nice. He's very charming, and he just seemed like the kind of person you could talk their way out of anything. The kind of person you bring home to your grandma, and it's guaranteed that grandma will love them. So you can kind of picture what kind of person he was like. But unbeknownst to the dealers... They had just welcomed one of the world's best jewel thieves into their circle. Leo began his quote-unquote addiction, starting with a string of petty thefts. His first robbery was when he was only six. The year was 1958. His mother had sent him out for milk, and he came back with 5,000 lira, which was about 8 US dollars. He told his mom the milkman was asleep, and he just looked through his drawers. His mom was angry, confused, thinking, how did I raise such a dishonest child? But even as she beat him, he said it didn't matter because that was when the defining moment when he found his calling. You ever felt like somebody was just born to do something, like you're naturally good at it? Leo said he was born to be a thief. Leo's proud specialty was charm. As a gem specialist, he was invited into offices, workshops, and even vault rooms to inspect merchandise. When he was invited, he would buy a few stones then, but then a week or a month later, the owner of the gem vaults would come back to a ransacked room with their entire stock gone. Throughout his entire life of robberies, Leo only had a few trusted buyers he would go to sell his loot. One day when he met up with one of his dealers in 2000, his dealer said he's got a lucrative job for him. In the first question of the job, with a down payment of 100,000 euros, was... Could the Antwerp Diamond Center vault be robbed? And then three years later, in 2003 February, what the world would then call the heist of the century would take place. And this would result in more than $100 million of jewelry stolen and still remain uncovered till today. This is the Antwerp Diamond Heist. All sources used are contained down below. I found the Wires exclusive interview with Leo very interesting. It's called The Untold Story of the World's Biggest Diamond Heist. It's well written and contains Leo's first-hand accounts of some of the details of the heist. Though when you're reading, also bear in mind that they're not confirmed. With that being said, let's begin. Let's talk about the Antwerp Diamond Center Vault. The vault itself is protected by 10 layers of security, which is a lot of security. To get through it, you first have to get through the door, and then the door itself is already equipped with six layers of security measures. 
The first layer is a combination dial from 0 to 99. Once you get past that, you need to go through a keyed lock and then a seismic sensor, which detects frequencies of vibration. And after that, a locked steel grate. And behind that, there's a magnetic sensor on a door, which if the attraction breaks, there will be an alarm because it will know the doors being opened. And the final layer of the door was extreme security cameras that will for sure capture your face once you pry through the magnetic sensors. If you're so good you get past all of that, you get into the vault. The vault itself has four layers, a keypad for disarming sensors, so you'll need the right code. There's a light sensor because by the time you get through to the eighth layer, you'll for sure need to turn on lights to see what you're working with. Ninth layer has more security cameras and the tenth layer, which is the final final one, is a motion heat sensor that will approximate your location, basically exactly where you're standing, and it's for sure pretty darn hard to get past that one. But five months later, Leo was standing in the middle of a fake vault, but down to the exact replica of this Diamond Center's vault level, and every corner was precise. And he was introduced to three men, which Leo referred to them by aliases and have never revealed their real names. And they were the Monster, the Genius, and the King of Keys. Now let's go into this group of perpetrators responsible for pulling off the heist of the century. The theft was carried out by a five-man team led by Leo, and he was later arrested and sentenced to 10 years in prison after being connected to the crime by DNA evidence from a partially eaten salami sandwich found near the crime scene, which I must imagine must be a very frustrating way to get caught after having millions of dollars under your belt. The team consisted of at least four other members, whom Leo gave aliases during interviews, and though he refused to specify whom each alias referred to. Number one, Speedy. He was a longtime friend of Leo's, and he was described as an anxious and paranoid man, and he was the one that was responsible for scattering the end evidence. Number two, the monster. And he was described as a tall, muscular man. He was apparently an expert lockpicker, electrician, mechanic, and driver, and was very strong. Number three, the genius. The genius was a specialist in alarm systems, and it was alleged that he could break into any security system. And finally, the king of keys, an older man, and he was described as one of the best key forgers in the world. His true identity is unknown, and he remains the only member of the crew to escape apprehension by the police. But let's talk about how the robbery happened, the step-by-step -step of how these five men pulled off the heist of the century. So as I said before, Leo had rented an office for around 25,000 Belgian francs, which was about 700 US dollars per month in the Antwerp World Diamond Center. And this was a technique pioneered by New York City-based criminal authority, nicknamed Mr. Stan, and it was first accomplished in New York's Diamond Center many years prior to this robbery. And it included creating access to the safe deposit box located in the vault beneath the building. And this method provided a tenant ID card, which offered Leo 24-hour access to the building. There, he posed as an Italian diamond merchant to gain credibility. The robbery itself required 18 months of preparation. 
The group used a number of methods to overcome the security systems, and this left investigators confused as to how they managed to successfully enter without triggering any security systems. The group conducted detailed surveillance of the Diamond Center, and they used camera pens to take pictures of the center and the vault. Leo disguised himself as a diamond merchant, and he slowly groomed security to become accustomed to his presence so that no one would suspect why he was there and when he was there. They hid a small camera above the vault door, and it was difficult to see when the ceiling lights were on. Basically, what the camera would do was that it would observe guards opening the door and record the combination they used. And it would then broadcast this data to a sensor, which the group had hidden inside a fire extinguisher in a storage room in the center. It was said that this team also practiced with a full-scale replica of the vault, which Leo claimed was replicated with the help of a diamond trader insider. And a day before the actual robbery, Leo visited the vault as the diamond merchant, and while he was inside, he sprayed women's hairspray on the thermal motion sensors. And the oil from the product was transparent, but would temporarily insulate the sensor from thermal fluctuations in the room, and then the sensor would only be triggered if it detected both heat and motion. But however, this doesn't last permanently and will do for a while, and the group used it as a temporary measure until they could properly disable the sensor system. And at this point, Leo remained in a nearby getaway vehicle during the robbery, listening to a police scanner prepared to leave when everyone was done. And to avoid the security cameras around the bank, the King of Keys picked the lock of an abandoned office building that was attached to the Diamond Center because it shared a private garden with the center that really didn't have cameras. The garden has a small balcony that connected to the center, and each of them climbed over it with a ladder. An infrared sensor monitored the terrace, but the genius walked behind a homemade polyester shield to hide his thermal signature, and when he approached a sensor, he placed a shield in front of it to prevent it from detecting the group. And then he disabled an alarm on the balcony's windows. Afterwards, they covered the security cameras in the antechamber with black plastic bags to allow the group to turn on the lights. And as they approached the vault door, it had a magnetic lock with two plates on it. So basically, a magnetic field was in between them, and when the door opens, it would trigger the alarm. The genius overcame this by using a custom-made aluminium plate that he attached double-sided tape to one side and stuck it on the two bolts and unscrewed them, so that while they were loose from their original position, they were still side-by-side -side and could still generate the magnetic field. And then he slowly pivoted them out of the way and taped it to the antechamber wall so that the magnetic field would still think the door was closed. The King of Keys used video footage to make a duplicate of a foot-long vault key to open the doors, which sounded quite easy to do, but this is actually a very intricate process and probably took a really long time because it's said to be nearly impossible to duplicate, which is quite ironic to be said now because someone did do it with this level of planning. But actually, during the robbery, the King of Keys knew that guards often visited a utility room, so just before opening the door, he went there and conveniently inside the unlocked room he found the vault key. And then he decided to steal the original key so that the vault's manufacturers wouldn't realize the key could actually be duplicated. And this was true because it wasn't until Leo revealed this, no one had known that a duplicate had been created. 
They then turned off the antechamber lights before opening the vault door to avoid tripping light sensors in the vault. And at this point, everything is happening in the dark. And after King of Keys picked the lock to the internal gate, the monster moved to the middle of the room with exactly 11 steps, reached up to the ceiling, and found the security system's inbound and outbound wires behind a panel. So you can really imagine how much of a practice they needed to do on the practice vault in order to remember every step, especially doing all of this in the dark. These panels are quite dangerous because there's an electric pulse shooting along these wires, and if any sensor was tripped or broken, the circuit would break and trigger the alarm. And to overcome this, the monster carefully stripped the wire's plastic coating and attached a piece of new wire to the exposed copper wiring, and that would divert the circuit, and if the sensors were tripped, nothing would happen. And just again, bear in mind that these steps so far are so intricate, and they needed to be in the exact order without one step missing. So I can't imagine how many practice rounds someone, let alone working with a group of people, you had to take before you go on the actual mission, hoping you won't get caught. Heat sensors were blinded with styrofoam boxes and light sensors with tape. They worked in darkness, having memorized the layout of the vault. They would occasionally flick the lights on for a brief moment, position their drill over the locked boxes, and they had to flip it off again. The King of Keys used a hand-cranked drill to break the locks on each of the security boxes, and the contents were then emptied into duffel bags. At 5.30 a.m., they finished and left, returning to the office building, a process which took almost an hour due to the need or caution, and they then put the bags in Leo's car, who then drove to the apartment while the other men headed there on foot. But there was a twist. After obtaining the duffel bags and meeting back at the rendezvous, Leo said when he and his crew opened the bags, most of them were empty, and there were only roughly $20 million worth of diamonds than the originally $100 million worth planned. Now they were only looking at rough $3 million split per person. And Leo thought, allegedly, that this was an insurance fraud by the traders and they'd just been played by the dealer and everyone else. The group was caught after Leo and Speedy went to dispose of the evidence of their plans, planning to burn it in France. Speedy was having trouble to overcome with panic at the prospect of transporting such incriminating evidence and he actually insisted that they dispose of it in a nearby forest. However, during which... Speedy suffered a panic attack and disposed of the evidence poorly. He just hurled it into the bushes and mud rather than burning it. And at this point, Leo was busy burning his own evidence, and when he discovered what Speedy had done, he decided it would take too long to gather everything up and they needed to leave. And he was so confident that nobody would find their rubbish in a bush. But the next day, a local hunter that owned the land called the police when he found the rubbish. And he believed that it was caused by local teenagers he had previously had disputes with. And when he mentioned that some of the rubbish consisted of envelopes from the Antwerp Diamond Center, the police immediately investigated. The evidence from the rubbish was enough to allow the police to gain a lead, and they were eventually able to identify Leo from security footage from a nearby grocery store where he had purchased a sandwich, because the receipt for the sandwich was amongst the rubbish. The police also found a business card that bore the address and phone number of Elio Dionorio, an Italian electronics expert tied to a series of robberies. 
and Leo had consistently refused to identify his accomplices, but all evidence indicates that Elio is the genius. A detective drove to the grocery and asked the manager to rewind his closed-circuit television to 12.56 p.m. on Thursday, February 13th. And when the video came to a halt and snapped into focus, there was an image of a tall, muscular Italian man purchasing salami. And his name was Ferdinando Finotto, the man most likely to be the monster. The plan was for Leo to drive back from Turn to Belgium and show up at the center so no one would suspect him from a list of clients missing. But unbeknownst to how far the police has caught up, he walked straight into the Diamond Center and waved at a security guard. And as he did so, the security guard knew the police were investigating Leo and phoned the manager, who then called the police. Leo was found guilty of orchestrating the heist. He is considered to be the leader of a ring of Italian thieves called La Scuola di Torino which meant the School of Turn, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison by the Court of Appeal of Antwerp in 2005, but had since been released on parole in 2009. In 2011, a European arrest warrant was issued against him after he was found to have violated his parole conditions. One of these conditions was that he needed to compensate the victims of the heist, which he never made any attempt to do. And as a consequence, he was arrested again in 2013 at the CDG airport in Paris during a layover from the U.S. to turn, and was made sure to serve the remainder of his prison sentence until 2017. An article by The Wire wrote that if Leo's insurance scam theory is correct, it went down like this. The dealers who are in on it removed their goods, both legal and illegal, from the vault before the heist and then filed claims on the legitimate gems. Or... There was no insurance scam. The thieves actually found $100 million in the vault, and Leo has spun a story to cloud the true origins of the heist. So what do you think? I think personally that the insurance scam theory was bull. For starters, it has never been clarified what exactly happened between the time frame of Leo taking over the bags into his trunk from his accomplices and them meeting up at the rendezvous. Also, if most of the duffel bags were empty, how would they not know the weight difference when they literally hauled all the bags across the building for an hour? There are so many things that did not make sense and were never answered. Was Leo protecting himself and his accomplices by spinning this story to lead the public to think that he was actually the victim and not the people who trusted the vault with their diamonds? Regardless of which theory is correct, the thieves got away with millions that were never recovered. And in the meantime, Leo Scherer may very well be hidden somewhere, possibly in Italy, waiting for his return.